Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday june 6th 2008 this week episode 85 comes to you from beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe here with me in the studio is the z-man cliff slotnick hey good afternoon joe pleasure to be here good afternoon cliff we've also got the wingman chris boizel at the controls and good it looks like afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Chris. It looks like we've got our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, rushed back from tennis to join us today. Let's see if we can uh, bring Dieter in. Hello, Dieter. Oh. Yes, I am here. There's your music, Dieter. Good to have you. And uh, welcome. And that is what, it's still Beethoven. Oh, yeah. Minor, right? I'm oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, we've got you Doesn't covered. Doesn't sound too good on the telephone. Doesn't matter, but I'm still a little bit sweaty. It was warm today. But I guess I got my exercise in and my heart rate up and all of those good things. It's we'll good. Look, look forward to bringing you in. And uh, I know you rushed back so that you could uh, join us with Dr. Wallet today. All right. Today's segments are going to include the microband trivia question. And we've got John Wallet, MD. And we're going to have him on for the entire hour today. We've been really looking forward to doing this interview and we don't plan on having any interruptions we're going to stop halfway through bring our technical director back on and do a quick uh, station break but other than that we're going for a full hour with dr wallet the round table at the end of the show will again bring uh, dr wild back in the z-man and i with the wingman's help have been working on the iaqradio.com website adding a blog every week so check it out when you're done go to iaqradio.com Let's thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at 
J-O-N-D-O-N.com. All right. To contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547, and then you can just press 1 to join the show. You can also stream the show through the Internet with or without downloading the TalkShoe software. And if you want to join and text message in, you simply go to TalkShoe.com. Go to their website, follow the directions, get yourself a PIN number, and uh, you can uh, join us and ask questions by text message. We appreciate suggestions, answer questions, and take requests by email at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. And also we have the IAQ console renewal credits available by emailing me and requesting a quiz, again, at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Well, audience, we're sorry to report no correct answers for last week's trivia question. Okay, the trivia question for Friday, June 6, 2008. An allergic emergency is the reaction that develops in an allergic patient and implies a threat for the patient's life. What is the term which describes an allergic emergency accompanied by a drop in blood pressure? Back to you, Joe. All right, thank you, Cliff. Okay, listeners, we've got uh, two now, I believe, maybe three outstanding trivia questions out of 85, so, so I guess our trivia people are gone for the summer. I don't maybe, know. Jeff. Let's get them back here. All right, our guest today is Dr. John Wallet, MD. Dr. Wallet is a full clinical professor of medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine, retired. His specialty is internal medicine, allergy, indoor air quality, and building science. He has served as an expert witness for both plaintiffs and defense in numerous cases involving issues related to indoor air quality, generally those involving damp building issues and bioaerosols. He has been a regular speaker at numerous conferences, including the Affordable Comfort Conference, the National Association of Home Builders, and other well-known conferences. He is also a very active member of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Dr. Willett had a long career using his unique combination of medical, building science, and indoor air quality, indoor air quality knowledge to help people have healthier lives as it relates to indoor air quality problems. We have some introduction music for Dr. Willett. Allergy sufferer, you're mad as hell. Allergy sufferer, when your tongue starts to swell. So keep all those carpets clean to keep all your histamine from getting a chance to make you ill. But maybe that scone you tried did have an egg inside allergy sufferer. all right good morning dr Willett. do we have you on the line 
You have me on the line. Sure, good morning to you. All right. Thank you. We're actually almost good afternoon now here, but good morning there. And we just generally say good day That's wherever right. because we've got listeners from around the world. Anyway, um, we wanted to have you on the show. We appreciate you joining us. And um, we really, uh, what brought our interest was your unique combination of skills in that you were an MD and also uh, very interested in building science and indoor air quality. Can you tell us a little bit about how the equation of indoor environments works and how it com- how these things combine? Well, to begin with, uh, when uh, I frequently will compare the uh, human body with the house, and one part of the house gets one part of the body gets sick, the rest of it uh, gets sick along with it, and say the same thing about the house. The way I like to look at the total equation of uh, air pollution in the house is first of all all houses are built outdoors believe it or not outdoors (laughs) so they are susceptible to everything that's outdoors and the air that comes into the house uh will uh uh, become part of the of the uh, equation but when we start uh thinking in terms of uh the indoor air pollutants we go to the microbial materials first we've got the bacteria We've got the gram-negative bacteria. Most of you have heard of uh, E. coli. Well, we've got a whole series of gram-negative bacteria. We'll have more to say about that later because they produce uh, uh, a material called endotoxin. And endotoxin is very important in indoor air quality uh, situations. Gram-positive, we all know about gram-positive. We look out for strep pneumonia or the streps that uh, we try to rule out that we don't want our, our people, our patients to have. That's gram positive. So we've got the bacteria. Then we have the viruses that come and go. Usually, uh, they, as far as we know, they don't hang around the house very long. And then we have the mold. And uh, mold, uh, every house has some mold to some degree. But again, there's certain uh, uh, things that can go wrong in the house that will produce large amounts of mold and all their byproducts. And as a result, we'll have something going on there. And the house dust mites are very uh, important uh, part of the equation. Uh, people who have allergies will get allergic to the dust mite feces or their droppings. But in addition to the house dust uh, mite uh, feces or the allergy part, the enzymes that digest the uh, uh, house dust as food will also uh, uh, cause problems for everybody, whether they have allergies or not. And then in the biological part, uh, we know we have pollens. Those are grown by uh, plants. Uh, and uh, again, moles are another allergen or thing we can become allergic to. And we have insects. We have uh, carpenter ants. We have uh, termites. And of course, those dreaded cockroaches that cause so much inner city asthma. And then usually when people talk about allergies, they're talking about pets. And so it's cats, dogs, uh, ferrets, uh, whatever people bring into the house. And, of course, we have the rodents uh, in inner city uh, problems. We have lots of difficulty with the, uh, with the uh, mice and the uh, rats. And then we go to the air pollutants, which are the inorganic or the, the chemicals. We have the combustion products. Uh, we talk a lot about cigarette smoke, or ETS. That's a big one. But again, uh, we can have uh, uh, combustion products from gasoline and diesel engines are getting into our houses, are getting into our workplaces, 
people burn wood. We have all kinds of materials that are produced by the wood and uh, uh, what is burned along with the wood and other fuels. And then the other part of the equation are the, the gases. We can have uh, nitrogen dioxide or carbon dioxide, which in themselves in small amounts are not necessarily uh, problems. But then we have the dreaded carbon monoxide, the silent killer, and then we have the SO2, the, the, which is a, another one which uh, can be very irritating. And then we've got particulates. Particulates are all those particles that will come into the house. There's the large particles, which are, if we measure them 100 microns, that would be the size of a human hair. We can have one that's 10 microns, which is the size of a pollen grain or a mole spore. And then we go on down from there. Those materials don't get much beyond the nose and the upper part of the throat. But then we have the very small particles, the ultra-small ones, and those get all the way down into the lung. And they, they, they contain all kinds of materials. Ozone's a problem. We know the ozone alerts. And we concern ourselves with lead, asbestos, and radon. So when we're talking about indoor air quality, we have to uh, think about all of those things as part of the equation. Uh, so and I'll let you ask me my next question. All right. Okay. Well, that I guess before we go any further, I want to talk about exposure. You had a we had talked about a time-weighted exposure. Can you explain what you mean by that and how that's important? What we mean is time-weighted exposure is how much exposure does the individual get. And for example, if we've got a a dysfunctional house where we're growing mold and bacteria and all that stuff, all those materials, the people that spend the most time in the house. Um, are the ones who's, who are more likely to get the worst part of it. Um, if the father or mother work outside of the house, then they're only there for night times or a part of the times or if the father works away like some of my people did in my big tri-state case that I did, uh, then they'd hardly know that there was a problem. So it's usually the children. And what's interesting about this time-weighted exposure, say if we had a, a very bad environment, the kids tend to catch more respiratory tract infections. They, they go to school, they're sick, and they come home. And guess what? They get more of the exposure, more time-weighted exposure, so it gets to be a snowball effect as far as what's going on there. So, Cliff? Uh, Dr. Willett, what, uh, what is an allergy? Is there a simple definition of what an allergy or what an allergic reaction is? Well, when you bring up the idea of simple uh, simple. Um, explanation that the allergies and immunology of allergy getting pretty complicated but for the most part uh, uh, an allergy is an antibody that uh, uh, works against uh, an individual for example uh, we couldn't live on this earth if we didn't make a lot of good antibodies to protect ourselves uh, we have antibodies against uh, bumps measles, smallpox, tetanus, diphtheria, all those are life-saving. However, for reasons we don't understand, 20% of the population will uh, develop uh, antibodies which are called IgE antibodies. And a good way to remember this is those helpful ones are IgG, or we call Ig good, whereas the IgE or those Ig evils, those are the ones that do cause uh, allergic reactions 
the allergic reactions that they cause usually are in the respiratory tract, and that's the classic uh, hay fever or ragweed, po- ragweed uh, pollen, or we had the tr- we got through the uh, tree season earlier this year. Now we're in the grass season, and again, this is what we call local allergy, or or we call that local anaphylaxis, um, as opposed to if, if we had had more of it uh, in the system. So, um, an IgE antibody is is usually those antibodies are present in about 20 to 25 percent of the people, and there is a very heavy genetic uh, uh, part of the equation of why they develop the allergies in the first place. However, it is possible for people who are not predisposed uh, genetically to allergies at 20% to develop uh, allergic reactions to uh, penicillin or bee stings or a number of drugs. But for the most part, it's the IgE antibody that makes up this uh, uh, evil group of allergies that makes people so sick during those various seasons. And the dust mites are also cause a lot of IgE antibody problems. Well, speaking of dust mites, I, I wanted to go into a little more detail on some of the issues that, you know, you mentioned a, a whole bunch of issues that affect indoor air quality. And one that um, we haven't talked a lot about is dust mites. And I know that you did some work back in uh, Dayton, Ohio in 2000 on air conditioning and high efficiency central dehumidification. Can you tell us a little bit about the um, study you were a part of and how, why it was so important to first of all get rid of these dust mites and how effective the strategies were? Well, what happened is uh, quite by accident, I read an ad in uh, Madison newspaper where they were looking for households who had too much humidity in them uh, or had too much wetness that, uh, w- that, they, that they wanted to introduce people to a very high efficiency uh, uh, dehumidifier, and that was the thermostore, uh, and it was the Sahara unit. So I read about that, and knowing uh, as an allergist that moisture is the mother of many biological evils, I thought that uh, this might be a breakthrough for uh, the field of uh, allergy, particularly the, the mites and the moles. So I became very uh, involved with working uh, with uh, these uh, particular dehumidifiers. As a matter of fact, uh, in my lifetime uh, of allergists, we, we figured I put, had more than 400 patients put these into their homes to dehumidifier. But to try to prove the point, um, we worked with Dr. Larry Arlian of Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. I'm here in Madison, Wisconsin, where these uh, thermostores, uh, uh, thermostore plant produces these high-efficiency uh, dehumidifiers. But I, I met uh, Dr. Arlian at, uh, I think it was an EPA meeting, and we got the idea that maybe we could do something about controlling uh, dust mites by dehumidifying uh, the environment. Uh, I guess it's generally known that uh, air, air conditioning in a house by itself, unless you've got an ancient uh, uh, air conditioner that grinds away all the time, they don't. The the usually the oversized, fast-working uh, air conditioners do not 
take enough humidity out of the house to prevent the bites. So what we did is we studied four things in Dayton. We studied the ambient uh, outside uh, air, water in the air, the relative humidity. We studied what would be in the house if there was no air conditioning, no dehumidifiers. We studied the dehumidif we, we studied the relative humidity in the house with just the air conditioner running. And then we did a combo of air conditioning plus the dehumidifier, one of those 50 quarter day dehumidifiers. And we studied it for one year to, to get a baseline of what we could expect would be the uh, uh, various uh, relative humidities with the various uh, units in place. And then the next year, we did very careful dust mite counting. And the long and short of things is that when we, uh, when we uh, did the combination of uh, air conditioning and the uh, high efficiency dehumidifier, we were able to get the relative humidity in the house below 50% and there was just practically no uh, uh, dust mites in the carpet and other materials. So we were able to uh, measure measure the relative humidity, measure the dust mites, and, and by the same token, we would say where was air conditioning alone, that really didn't have any impact at all on the dust mites uh, that we were measuring in that, those houses. And we did 25 of each, and this uh, article was uh, published in the Journal of the American uh, JCI, Journal of Clinical Allergy and Immunology, and that was thought to be have been one of the better articles uh, produced uh, in, in the year 2000. Now, was this, I'm just curious because this is a, uh, an issue that you know, I personally have problems with, and um, I'm assuming you had to keep that relative humidity below 50% for a rather lengthy period of time. Do you, can you tell me how long it takes before we start to see that reduction? Well, if you, uh, well, you had to have it on starting in June. If you measure, uh, throughout the country, and of course this is a huge country, and as uh, the building scientists tell us, we've got seven zones to deal with. But um, in the zone that, uh, uh, that uh, Dayton, Ohio is, or Madison, Wisconsin, or Chicago, as a rule, the dust mite levels uh, uh, become, well, the relative humidity and the dust mite levels go down once you get by October, November what you're really dealing with is the residual of the dust mite uh, growth that occurred uh, in the summer months. Uh, in this area, Madison or Dayton, the dust mite count starts to go up uh, in uh, June, and well, in May or June. It peaks August and September, the dog days of summer when the humidity is high, and then it peaks, and then it gradually starts to come down. It's that time of the year when we have to do the intensive uh, dehumidification in order to control the dust mites in those uh, uh, residences. Okay. Now, Cliff had written a question. I'm going to I, – I want one more follow-up on this, if you don't mind. As an allergist, if you had to choose between mold and dust mites, um, which allergen results in more medical expense per year? I, I would uh, – for medical expense, that's an interesting question because it's hard to separate the two because both of them are considered uh, 
biological products of damp houses. But I would imagine if we, we were talking just the 20% allergy people, that the dust mites probably do that. But the background of uh, humidity and what the, and the production of molds and all the mold byproducts, which we can get into if you like, that combination helps to drive the whole uh, irritated or inflammatory process of the respiratory tract. So that, it's a very important contribution, and it would be hard to separate. I see. We would like to get into that in a moment, but first Cliff had another question. Right. I, I'd like to get in a little bit if we could. We have a lot of people that really follow the show, I think for legal reasons, legal ramifications, legal cases, case law. And can you tell us a little bit about this tri-state home builders legal action, how you got involved? Um, you know, did it change your, did this litigation change your perceptions, you know, about health issues and damp houses, et cetera? Well, that was interesting. I always remember December 13th, 1988, two of my uh, uh, lawyer friends, showed up at my desk in the morning bringing um, cinnamon rolls and coffee and told me they had a few houses they would like for me to look at. And they were going to a trial of these houses. And uh, they kind of suckered me into volunteering. <laughs> you know, the old, old, the old, uh, old standby, never volunteer for anything. Right, absolutely. Well... 150 houses later and 558 <laughs> subjects later, I had uh, traveled uh, uh, all the way up to Cloquet, Minnesota, which is about 370 miles from here, Upper Peninsula, Minnesota, uh, upper, upper Peninsula, Michigan, uh, Marinette, and places like that. I, me and my two trusty nurses went up there, and we did full workups on uh, a lot of people. I had a lot of help. A lot of uh, my two nurses and other people were helping to record a lot of what we did. And, and we did what would be, for all practical purposes, a complete allergy workup that you'd get. So 558 people later, um, where I sat and talked to these people and listened to their stories, I and, and a big item is you sit in a room, a closed room with these people, and you can smell them all reeking from their bodies. You can smell them. You you put an otoscope into their ear and you put your nose in their hair and you say, wow, where are these people living? And that large group of people um, really convinced me that there was something to people living in these damp houses. Simultaneously, to the medical wing of this, uh, or medical arm of this study, we also did the um, uh, building science wing. And initially, the the fault of these uh, manufactured or prefabricated houses was they put a, uh, a vapor uh, membrane uh, retarder, or it was a membrane, uh, it was a filco paper, which it was, on the uh, outside wall, the cold side of the wall, and there was no vapor barrier on the inside wall. So these houses were well built, and they were... Uh, twice as tight as the stick-built control houses that we had, and the water would go into those walls, would hit the back wall where the vapor retarder was or vapor barrier, and would stop, 
and the walls became very wet. And then during the summer months, when the heat of the summer uh, was on those walls, we had a tremendous biological uh, experiment going on in those walls, and that's what uh, uh, that's what caused the what we felt caused the problem. The uh, five eighths inch uh, plywood uh, are underneath the uh, vapor barrier. In other words, the vapor barrier was between the plywood and the hardboard siding sheathing that was put on the outside. You could take a ballpoint pen and stick it through that five eighths inch uh, uh, board that the the, the uh, board was so rotten. Um, and, and this is what caused, we believe, this uh, uh, large biological experiment. Back then, we didn't call it mold. We call it factor X, because we knew then that there was many uh, biological materials in that wall. Uh, everybody back then would, would call it mold, but uh, we, we had had experiences working with Dr. Milton and uh, from Harvard and uh, Dr. Jack Spangler, where they were interested in a lot of the other byproducts. So early on, we said, there's a lot of material that's being generated in these walls, and with these people living in these houses with this time-weighted exposure, um, a lot of this, a lot of this, these illnesses and things were happening. So as a result of seeing so many of these people, and then seeing people who had, who had been living in such houses, but had them repaired. Having them repaired was to take all the walls off, uh, rearrange the uh, paper barrier, and have dry houses. And when you looked at the people where their house was repaired compared to the houses that uh, were not repaired, there was a striking difference. So although uh, when, we, when we actually did the study, uh, we, we, we couldn't have all the controls that you need for a classic medical scientific study, I became convinced at that time that there was something to that, and uh, that was my start in this area, and uh, it went from there. Uh, just to follow up on that, you, you talked about this time-weighted exposure. Um, if, if people were in the house more, such as children, and the parents worked, was there a difference in symptoms or response? Huge, huge. huge. Uh, a lot of these, these were up in northern Wisconsin, uh, up in the Iron Belt of uh, Minnesota, up in the Upper Peninsula. And a lot of times, wintertime, when these houses were closed up, a lot of the husbands would work out and be gone for a week or they wouldn't be there. And, 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 and the opposite was true of uh, the children and the mothers and people who were in there. Those, the, it hardly bothered the, the husbands for the most part, but the, the women and children were sick a lot of the time. And not only were the uh, kids with allergies sick, all people were sick whether they had allergies or not. You didn't have to have that 20% uh, group uh, that, um, you didn't have that 20% that, that had the IgA, IgE allergy. No, it's not true that everybody was necessarily sick in the house because there's different parts of the house where people probably had greater exposures. Like if you're in the north side of the house where uh, we had the most rotten material, those people seem to have more illness than the others, although uh, we, uh, we, we, we couldn't get that specific. There were other things that we did, and also, we, we, we took dust samples, and uh, we sent them to Dr. Susan uh, Graveson, uh, who was the head of the uh, ALK labs in Denmark, 
And it was interesting when she when they looked at the material that was in those dust samples that we sent to them. The, the, uh, if if those dust samples were found in Denmark, uh, <laughs> a red light would almost flash and say, "Get out of those houses." <laughs> so I'm just saying that the the uh, the Danes and the Scandinavians, for the most part, are way ahead of us as far as indoor air and materials like that. And and when I had the opportunity to visit uh, visit Susan Graves in, uh, in Denmark, it, it became obvious that uh, uh, to me as and again, it wasn't a big scientific study that these people living in these houses were sick, and there was, seemed to be a good reason for it. Now, these were manufactured homes, and they had a vapor barrier on the outside. And seemed, I'm just curious, do you know if those same manufactured homes worked in other climates and they didn't work in that cold climate that, that you're that's in? That's a very good question, because those houses would be perfect if they were in Tampa, Florida, because okay. down there you want the... Uh, Paper barrier on the outside. I mean, uh, you'd want them on where they were placed uh, on the outside of the uh, uh, wall surface, because uh, the humidity out there is on the is is in the outside world, and it's trying to get into the house. Here, in in our northern com northern uh, uh, climates, the humidity was generated inside the house, and it was trying to get out of the wall. So. You're right, uh, uh, Joe. The um, th that, those houses would be perfect uh, for Tampa, Florida, because the vapor barrier was placed in the right area for that. So one size does not fit all, I guess. That's, that's, huh? that's right. We have a huge country. We have a huge country. We have seven different zones, and that's why there can be no national, uh, no, no national. Uh, what I'm trying to think. Uh, building code or? Building codes for everybody because uh, everybody's different. All right. Well, let's, we've got, uh, we're about halfway through. What we're going to do is take a quick break. I want to uh, thank our sponsors first. Then we're going to bring Dr. Wow in and see if he has any uh, comments or questions. And then we'll bring you back on and uh, finish up for the day here. All right. First, I want to thank Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right. Do we have some intro music for Dr. Wow available? There we go. Good day, Dieter. Do we have you on the line? <clears throat> am I um, still muted or am no, I on? You're on. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Well, like I always, uh, I think I said that several times, I always learned something. And I knew I had a 50-50% chance of knowing whether the IgE or the IgG, whether one of them was the good one or the bad one. And I lived my whole life with it, and I will never, ever forget it. The E are the evil ones, and the G are the good ones. Thank you, John. I need it. <laughs> we both wrote that down, actually. Why don't we... Uh, I tell you, that, that is great. Let's un unmute uh, Dr. Willett. Uh, any other comments or questions while we've got you, Dieter? Well, you, you know, 
Yeah, even though we grew up with Mother Nature, and Mother Nature has given us viruses, unfortunately, and bacteria and molds and all of those good things, and, and, and dust mites and cockroaches. And um, what every, every time I, 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 I hear about, you know, the building sciences, and, and um, you sit there and you shake your head and I say, it is, you know, 2000, we are in the 21st century, are you really trying to tell me that we don't know how to build a good house in the right climate? Apparently, we know it, and some people just ignore all of the above, uh, which is amazing. On the other hand, and uh, John uh, um, uh, touched on that, in Europe, you know, if you go to Finland or Sweden or Denmark, yeah, this is not the United States. These are small countries, basically have the same climate all over the place. It hardly changes. Now, over here, we have tropical climate, and we have it very cold up north where uh, John is living. And um, so on, on one hand, I, 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 I understand that they don't have the problems, or once they know how to build a good house, it doesn't really matter whether you do it or build the house in northern Denmark or in southern Denmark, because the climate is almost the same. Great so that be one of the reasons why we don't see as many problems over there. Dr. Wolf, I have a question over here. Don't we know how to do it? And why the heck do we make these mistakes? Well, we've got a text question. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to go back to Dr. Wallet. Do you have anything to, uh, any response or comment on what Dr. Wall said? Well, uh, it's interesting. Uh, the, um, one of one of the one of the things that um, that I was impressed with back in 1993 when I was visiting Susan Graveson, Dr. Susan Graveson, is the fact that there was a poster on the wall, and I said, "What's this all about?" And to make a long story short, she said, "Well, we're trying to help people with asthma." And I said, "What do you do?" Well, if we have a patient that has asthma and is costing us a lot of money because it's all national health, we send a an investigator out of the house to find out is there something that we can do in that house that can uh, change that environment that will uh, make this person better and not cost us so much money to take care of to keep them out of the hospital keep them out of the emergency room and that's 1993 and and even right now we have a hard time in this country uh, getting uh, physicians to take the environments uh, uh, taking it seriously I'm, I'm saying that uh, that's one of the problems we have so again and then um, some of the best uh, research that's been done there now they have accidents that happen for example in Finland dr. I know level is the we call her the queen bee of biological sciences there and she leads a real cohort of good investigators and if they have a water damaged school or a water damaged hospital, then it's in those situations where they will create the studies and do things that will uh, make us understand that there is a relationship between these biological uh, uh, bad situations and uh, the health. Uh, so they, and, uh, they give you so the I concrete evidence you need. Yes. I, that's, you know, I've. I've I talked to you briefly uh, the other day, and I was—I'm still fascinated by this—that 
we have this problem in the United States. You recognized long ago, they've recognized in other countries long ago that we should try and um, maybe do a little more prevention or solve the problem instead of, you know, treat the symptom. What What's holding us back? I don't understand. Well, there, there's, there are many items. I think that uh, we, since back then and up to the present time, there are many articles. The best articles are the epidemiologic studies that uh, show the relationship between, say, respiratory disease and environments. And these things uh, have been done. And in 2002, a group of uh, uh, 20 committee uh, through the uh, uh, what was it? The nationals, uh, national national uh, trying to get the, the words right. Uh, through the National Academy of Sciences, did a meta-analysis of the many papers that have been written regarding epidemiologic studies and, and disease. And it really, in 2002, the committee started, they published the, uh, this, these articles in 2004. Damp indoor spaces and health? Yes. Okay. And if you look at our calendar, this is now 2008, four years later. And if you do, and I think that not only did they show relationships between uh, childhood asthma getting worse in these environments and other ones, what they did do is they made people who are going forward with more studies do better jobs of um, doing investigations so that when they were saying, well, this paper wasn't any good because of uh, this bias or this paper wasn't any good for that bias, what they've done is they've made the studies better. They usually have third-party investigators come in the house where they, they weren't having people self-report the houses and things like that. So as a result, our studies have gotten better, and the information has also gotten better as a result of that. And I would say I would, I would love to see that committee uh, get together again and go through it again because where some people were some of the examples we had uh, there were no causes at first. In other words, you couldn't say a moldy house was the cause of asthma then, but you could say there was a strong association, and for other conditions, they'd say there was a weak association. But right now, uh, I did a uh, Medline search, and I've got two very good articles, one in particular from Kate Kreiss and, and her group out of Morgantown, West Virginia, and she referred to that article, and, and, she's, and she can just about say that Yes, there is a relationship, uh, as a, as, and asthma is probably caused by these environments. And there was another article in here from Heinon uh, uh, Lavi group in Finland where they're saying asthma is caused. So I think that the studies have gotten better as a result of that, and we're going forward. And the bottom line of this whole study is, is that damp buildings are a public health nuisance. They're a problem. They're costing us money. And we've got to improve the way we build our houses, and we've got to make healthier houses. And I think building science also has just come of age. So when we get this good medical science, dovetail it with uh, this uh, better uh, uh, medical science, with the building science, we can go forward. And, again, uh, that's the way we're going to make the progress here. And, and like it or not, well, the price of gasoline going up and the, and the cost of heating homes going up and making more energy-efficient homes, 
the green building uh, uh, programs that we've got are all looking towards this. So we we really are going in the right direction. I understand that in the next 25 years, 50% of all building residences uh, will be changed over, and we've got a great opportunity to improve the living conditions of people and doing what's right in building science and what's good for health. I'm glad to hear you You feel the glass is half full and not half empty. Absolutely. All right. That's good news. And I know that you're in the mainstream with the, you know, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Do you see that? I mean, I know that you were a little frustrated, it seems, probably early in your career that others weren't doing the same type of thing you're doing. Are you starting to see the mainstream move a little has, more? Uh, last year, the College of Allergy, we had a whole day dedicated to indoor environments uh, on Thursday. The meeting started on Friday, and we had over 150 doctors at that meeting. Uh, um, I believe the, where were we in Austin? Not Austin. We were, we were in Dallas, Texas. So we, we really starting to get people's interest. In other words, it, it takes a while. Doctors were not trained to be building science. They were trained to write prescriptions and give medications and not be building inspectors. But I think that uh, with the price of gas and gasoline going up and, and the cost of energy and, uh, and, and even all the building problems that we're having right now, we've, we've got to take a step back and, and make more quality houses and make greenhouses and, and do it right. And I think we know how to do it. And it takes a while to, uh, as I tell people, to convert the heathens. Okay. okay. Well, we're, we're going to, uh, just to let people know, that's fine. We, I, uh, I appreciate your, your candor. And um, we've got a couple text questions that we will get to on the roundup just to let people know. But I want to, uh, I want to go to another question because I, I think this is an interesting case that um, you told me about when we were talking earlier. You were talking about a case of farmer's lung and how you discovered this case actually came from an indoor environment and what caused the farmer's lung. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, this, this was one of the best cases we ever had. And uh, uh, my mentor and my teacher, Dr. Charles Reed, uh, who lives in the northern part of the state, uh, uh, got involved with this. And essentially we had a, a man in his 40s who could go 50 miles on a bicycle and about how do they break a sweat? And he went from that to being able to hardly walk up a two flights of stairs. And what had happened is his, uh, he developed what we call hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And what that's all about is uh, we get inflammation uh, in, the, um, in the air sacs of the lung. That's pneumonia, pneuma, pneumo, pneumonia. That's why we call it hypersensitivity. It means it's allergic pneumonia. And as a result, you get a thickening of the uh, walls of the lung, and you are unable to have the carbon dioxide, uh, well, the oxygen go in and the carbon dioxide come out. It's, and as a result, you develop this bad disease. Now, what was interesting in uh, the workup is his blood test showed that he had some, uh, he had a, uh, an antibody. This was, in a, this was a bad one. There was an IgG, but it was a bad one antibody directed against actinomycetes. And actinomycetes is a small organism that, that we call a thermophilic, and it loves heat. Most people do not, when we do the usual bowl studies, people do not culture up to 120 degrees. Well, anyway, when we were doing a walkthrough in that house, 
Dr. Charles Reed, uh, in his wisdom, was wondering, why did this house produce uh, an, an, uh, an organism that made this person allergic to actinomycetes, which probably was the cause of this condition? So while everybody's looking here, there, and everywhere in the house, Charles Reed is walking around in the house with his uh, hands on the wall, feeling for temperatures. And on the south wall, he, he could feel a difference in temperature of this house and said, this is where the house is warm, and yes, it's the south side. And when they opened up those walls, that's where they were able to culture the actinomycetes. And this was right over the area where this man used to do his violent exercises. He'd get into kickboxing and everything else to try to stay in condition. And the hitting the, I would imagine that vibrating the, the, the house and shaking the house up with all his uh, heavy physical activity helped to uh, bring some of these uh, organisms into the environment. And so, and then he was breathing hard while he was doing it. He'd get it into his lung. And that's what we suspected was the cause of this. This man had such severe disease, he went on to have a lung transplant. Mm, so, wow. uh, but, but again, it shows practical, it shows common sense. You know, as we used to say back in Vermont, common sense is a genius dressed up with a pair of overalls. What we did is, is Charles, Charles, who I'd say right now, God bless him, 86 years old, and in the past three years has written four chapters for four separate books and is very much involved in asthma in the agent. And he, Dr. Reed, does believe that environmental factors do play a role in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease that does end up uh, in the older people today. Dr. Willett, is there a difference between upper and lower airway response to allergens and or irritants? Well, let, let's say this, that, the, that you know when people come to me and they ask me, what's the best air filter that I can get for my home? I said, let's first start by making the nose work, because that's the best air filter that was ever made. Mm -hmm. The air, the nose, theoretically, is supposed to filter all the air. So everything that's evil gets to the nose first, and it filters out a lot of it, and a lot of the large particles that are too big to go down into the airway will stick in the nose. So the upper airway, the nose and the sinus, that's what we talk about upper airway. However, there's a long tail attached to that upper airway that goes down into the lungs, and a lot of that material can get down there. Uh, there's probably uh, uh, probably only about a third amount as much of asthma as there is upper respiratory disease. Uh, I, I can't give you the statistics, but there's not as much asthma or lower airway disease as there is upper airway disease. Uh, but a lot of it is the uh, is the contact with that outside environment. But um, Again, as I always say, the first treatment for asthma is to get that upper airway cleaned up and make that air filter do its job so it keeps most of the evil stuff up there. Okay. I, did I, that's excellent. Want on that? No, that's excellent. We need to, that's perfect. What, what we'd like to do is ask you one more question, then we're going to go to what we call the roundup and uh, talk a little. I'm just curious, and this wasn't anything we, we discussed earlier, how did you get involved with the uh, building science seminars and the summer camp stuff? Um, well, once I got involved in the tri-state homes, I, uh, there was a, a person who was the president of Thermostore 
name is Ken Garing. Most people in building science know Ken. And then uh, I got I got involved and I learned I, I started learning about that um, moisture and uh, relative humidity and active water and try to understand why the houses get wet and what happens. So I started asking those questions because it became obvious that there was a heavy relationship between illnesses and wet houses. And then along the way came Mary Minier, who was uh, working uh, with uh, Energy Star. I met her, and she told me about uh, affordable comfort. So I went to affordable comfort, and I found out that uh, there's a lot of lot lot I can learn by going to these to this organization. So I became a regular member going there, and then uh, I started uh, giving eight-hour programs for them and. Uh, it just grew because for me, if you're, if as, a, as an allergist, you should know something about indoor air environment, and there's just an awful lot more out there than classic allergy cats, dogs, and birds, and things like that. There's that whole potpourri that I mentioned earlier, all the inorganic materials, the particulates, and all of that, and that all makes one large equation, and the allergy is only part of it. I was wrong. One more question. Cliff has one more here. Okay. Uh, can, All right. Can you talk a little bit about endotoxins and whether or not they play a role in allergic response? I never thought you'd ask. <laughs> 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 um, everybody gets excited about mold because we can see that. What we don't see is the gram-negative bacteria. If we have a sewer backup, if we have a, a wet carpet, if we have a dog that drags his butts and crosses the wet carpet and gets the gram-negative material all over that, we are going to grow. We're going to grow the uh, gram-negative bacteria. Now, when you start thinking about microorganisms, uh, we start thinking about weapons of mass destruction. Every particular organism out there has their weapons of mass destruction. So. The endotoxin is going to be trying to fend off the molds. The molds are going to try to fend off them. So everyone can produce these toxins so that they can have their place uh, on the map. Well, the gram-negative bacteria produce endotoxin, and that's a, a large molecule that if all I can tell our people listening, if you go into a wet, damp house or one with a sewer, or you don't even need a sewer backup to get that, and then all of a sudden you get flu-like symptoms, you get headache, you feel just terrible, you feel rotten, and you're, you'll get inflammation of the airway, you get a stuffy nose, post-nasal drainage, cough. Those are the classic symptoms that one gets uh, from that toxic product produced by endotoxin. Probably the guru of endotoxin is uh, Dr. Uh, Milton, uh, who was with Harvard, and Jack Spengler, who's the head of environmental and occupational court, uh, environmental and occupational diseases from Harvard. And way back when I got into that, they were writing about the effects of uh, endotoxin. And, and um, uh, Don Milton told me when we were at a course together at the University of Michigan, he said, someday you're going to find out that endotoxin is probably the cause of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, or COPD, in most people. And it's amazing how uh, that particular uh, 
how how this keeps to seemingly that 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 how prophetic he was with that statement. So it's a very important material that's probably in every wet, damp houses. When we go back to the courthouse, we always talked about that courthouse case back in Florida where uh, people had headaches and they were sick and they were trying to do it all by studying moles. I would bet that place with the water in there was just stacked with endotoxin and that was the cause of that wall of diseases. As a matter of fact, they wanted to have a, a, a court case in there and the judge had so much asthma he had to get out of it when they were into this. Well, so, I just want to interrupt you for, for, for one second because I believe you're absolutely right. I saw a presentation made by uh, the lead investigator and the person that took all of these samples in that building, and they had an aerial view of the building. And guess what showed up in the aerial view as being directly next to that building was a sewage treatment plant. Literally, okay. ne literally next door to it. Is that true? Absolutely. I, but I, I would bet that is, and and you know the the non the people who said the glass is half empty when it comes to the building science and that we're barking up the wrong tree. These people never bring in the business of endotoxin as being important part. I asked I asked the investigator how many mold samples that he took, and these numbered in, if I'm not mistaken, in the tens of thousands. Thousands. That was Dr. Hodgson of uh, Hodgson was one of. Uh, one th this actually was Phil Morey, and and I asked Phil Phil, I asked Dr. Morey how many bacterial samples did he take, and it was zero. Yeah, and and again, and, and studies that we've done in schools, um, where we where we had wet schools that had to be rehabbed and the teachers were sick. We uh, actually found very high levels of gram-negative bacteria in rooms where people had the most. This, this could be. We could go on and on about this. But well, yes, I know. Got to look at the full equation. When you talk about bioaerosols, you're talking about moles. You're talking about gram-negative bacteria, and you're talking about dust mites, and then all the products that these will produce, plus all of the uh, building materials that are that are worked on that are that that are. Uh, that are harmed by wet environments. And you take the plastics, the plasticizers, and all these other materials, they get wet, they produce other materials, and it all goes into a, a potpourri of mix of materials, and it's hard to separate which one causes it. The bottom line is wet houses are a public health uh, worry. Uh, and I know that Dr. Wow will want to add something on endotoxins, one of his favorite subjects. So what we'd like to do here, Dr. Wallette, is go into what we call the roundup. We've got a couple text questions, and then we're going to go around the horn and see if anybody has final thoughts. First, I'd like to go to a text question or two that came in, and thanks for your patience, anybody that sent questions. Um, the first one is, and, and maybe we can both talk about this if you're not comfortable with it, Dr. Willett, uh, why are vapor barriers required 
if condensation is always going to be a problem? Um, when I was in summer camp with you and with Joe Steebrook, we could spend four hours talking about that, and they're not always required. And as a matter of fact, right now, I think the average builder would say that they're probably not required anymore as long as you put the proper sequencing of insulation in the wall. Excellent. That's That would be my my response would have probably been very similar that, I think that's uh, good. you know, we really don't need these vapor barriers as, and they're not, not as important. They don't have to be there so much. And uh, there was a lot of emphasis put on them that probably wasn't quite necessary. Okay, let's go back to Dr. Wow real quick. Dieter, do we have you on the line? Absolutely, yeah. Any questions uh, or comments? Uh, I did studies at the Graduate School of Public Health, University of Pittsburgh, with a couple of our students. And this goes back to the 80s uh, on endotoxins. And we got into endotoxins uh, via the uh, cotton workers. And we uh, measured, we uh, had exposures to cotton dust. And one of the indicators that we measured were endotoxins and gram-negative bacteria. They go, they go hand in hand. And uh, yes, indeed, uh, if you look at the cotton industry, which was not very well regulated as far as OSHA is concerned for a long time. Well, OSHA is only here for 30 years or so. Um, if you see the lung damage uh, that is done to cotton workers, not on day one, not on day two, but after you know, the time, we talk about time-rated average, these guys go in there into the cotton mill uh, in, in, in the old days, seven days a week. Uh, we saw a severe lung damage, and respiratory problems, let's put it that way, and certainly one of the bad boys was were these uh, endotoxins. Now, on cotton dust, is a heck of a lot more than just little endotoxin and lipopolysaccharides and all of those good things. There may have been mold in there. There may have been uh, a particulate, and not may have, there is particulate matter in there. Who knows? I mean, you have a whole uh, slew of things going into your lung, and you get lung constrictions, you cough, and uh, you have breathing problems. So I believe that if you, know, if you have a, not a mold, but a bacterial infected uh, house, um, that you will have problems. There's no doubt in my mind. And my, my follow-up on that also is that uh, uh, when you're hanging uh, tobacco up to dry, the gram-negatives work in there, and there's yep. a very high content of endotoxin in cigarettes. Absolutely that. And, I mean, it's all over. You know, we have farmer's lung. We have bagasosis. Those are the workers with sugar cane. I mean, it's all the same. <laughs> yeah, they're, it's, they are out there. They have these products, and uh, they are full, full of um, uh, bacteria. And then, you know, you are concentrated, uh, have a concentrated exposure in the factory, uh, which, you know, normal people don't have. I mean, people who don't work there, I shouldn't say normal. And, um, yeah, you, you see the, the, the terrible effects you see over there. And let me mention one more thing. I know time's about to go out. No problem. But we mentioned, when Dr. Reed was studying these, he, we had about 
oh, somewhere around 500 papers so far that are talking about endotoxin disease because he did a review of that with Don Milton in the Journal of Allergy. But he, the new, the new kid on the block is innate immunity, innate immunity. And you're going to find out that that potpourri of bioaerosols contains a lot of players of innate immunity. And Dr. Reed told me this morning that those are probably going to be responsible for a lot of the COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, in people who don't even smoke. All right. I've got a question that was texted in. I'm going to ask Cliff to comment on this one, and that is if structural components were treated with antimicrobials during construction, would microbes still be a problem in areas of high water activity? I think that I've kind of got a long answer because I think it depends on the vulnerability of the materials. I think wooden paper would probably be most vulnerable. I think the real challenge, and I think it's something that Dr. Willette brought out, is that water is really the universal solvent. It'll penetrate and damage more materials than any other liquid on Earth. So it may not even be results that are microbial related, but it might be the release of plasticizers because materials are breaking down and so on and so forth. So I don't, I think chemical treatment may be a part of the solution, but I think it really goes back to building design and proper building materials and proper installation and common sense. Keeping things dry in the first place. Right. Okay, Cliff, anything else you, you wanted to what? add? No, that was mine. Okay, somebody else had a comment? I have a comment. Please. Uh, not only are these, uh, where, where I've seen and other people have seen, are these biocides that are used to kill the moles once we've set up housekeeping. And there, are, there were some bad ones, and they've even, some of these have even been banned in Sweden. So going in with biocides in lieu of drying the place out or doing the proper water damage uh, uh, control measures, um, that's a bad thing. So, yes, sir. I think everybody, everyone would agree with that. And uh, I wanted to finish up just by asking Dr. Willette, is there anything that we didn't cover that, you know, you'd like to cover? We The rules have changed, as we say in the beginning, so we can take as long as we want. Is there anything that you'd like to add? Well, I got an innate immunity. I've said that. And I guess that uh, I would say that building science is, is coming on and we're doing better all the time. We've got to sell the people on uh, building smaller houses and doing them right, not letting houses be an emotional decision as to how we'll build it, but a practical decision as what makes it green and what keeps it waterproof and what will allow for the total equation of, uh, of filtration and uh, moisture control and all. See, our bodies have all these built-in things that keep the homeostasis going inside of our bodies. But we put these houses up, and in many ways, they're, 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 a, they're a living thing in its own right, and they've got to be allowed the opportunity to properly ventilate or breathe. They've got to have their filtration done, that's what our kidneys do. All of these things have to be done, and people have got to be more aware of the IAQ factors than worrying about a slate entryway or a granite uh, top in the kitchen. You've got to put your money where it's most important, that 
that solves the problems with energy efficiency and indoor air quality as both being present at the same time. Well, thank you for that. And I hope we can bring you back sometime for we've still got several questions here that we never got to, and we'd love to have you back to talk again. Okay, well, that's, it's been fun. All right. Well, we've had a great time with you, and uh, I want to, first of all, thank uh, my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick, here for helping out with today's show. My pleasure, John. Uh, of course, the wingman, uh, Chris Boisel. I want to thank you. I want to thank Dr. John Wollett for joining us today. That was uh, quite an interesting interview. We're really uh, happy we had you on. We've been waiting, and uh, hopefully you're recovering well. I had a little issue getting you back here, but it sounds like you're really back up on the horse and going strong. I also want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us again here, as usual, on Indoor Air Quality Radio. But most importantly, I want to make sure we thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.